Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. 7 a.m. stepping onto the unit. Got a couple waiting in the ED. Gotta write some notes, gotta see some old folks. Stressing cause my pager's howling. Beeping on and on, everybody rushing. Trying to get down to a code blue. I run the opposite way, but I see my intern. Putting in an IJ, straighten the carotid. Looking on the bright side, we got the ABG. It's call day, call day, gonna get killed on call day. All the clinics dumping patients for the weekend, weekend. Call day, call day, train wreck transfer, okay. He was billed as stable. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 29. Welcome back. I am Ryan Gray, your host, back with you for another session of the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, the podcast about medical school where we take you through the pre-med process, medical school, and even through residency. We're here to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. You just heard an awesome opening parody song by Z-Dog MD, Dr. Zubin Demania. He is a hospitalist in Las Vegas, Nevada, doing some amazing things that we will talk about during the interview. But I just want to let you know, he is a real doctor. Not a lot of people know about him. Hopefully we can spread the, the love and get more people to find out and listen to his wonderful YouTube videos because he's he's angry at smoking cats, which you'll hear at the end of the podcast. But we need some more people to pay attention to Z-Dog's YouTube videos. We need even more people to pay attention to exactly what he's doing with the Treehouse Health Clinic there in Las Vegas at the Downtown Project. Before we get started with the interview, I do want to talk about an awesome five-star review that came in by the wolf 1986 so thank you the wolf 1986 nice five-star review saying we are very informative if you want to leave a five-star review in itunes go to medicalschoolhq.net slash itunes 
Remember, guys, you can interact with us after the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Medical School HQ. Email us, feedback at medicalschoolhq.net. Or you can leave a comment here for myself or any of our guests that we have on. We'll uh, get any comments to them. You can go to today's show notes, medicalschoolhq.net slash session 29. And you'll get all the show notes, everything that we talk about in today's episode, you can find there. Links to everything, links to Z-Dog's website, his YouTube videos, and uh, you can leave a comment there. So let's get into the interview. I started the interview by asking Dr. Demania how he got into medicine in the first place. You know, for me, it was one of those deals where uh, it was like being named Jeeves when you were a, a kid, you were sort of destined to become a butler. Uh, for me, both my parents were physicians and they were from India too. So it was like a one-two punch. It's like crazy Indian tiger parents and both of them docs. So it was really, you would think there'd be this underlying assumption that I would just go into medical school, but it turned out they were pretty realistic. And, you know, my mom used to say that I was too lazy and, and, uh, and unmotivated to be a doc. And I used to think it was just reverse psychology she was trying to pull, but I think she might have been right. So for me, I tried everything I could. And my dad just told me that he was, he's a primary care internist. And and he just told me, look, it sucks. Like you work really hard. You, everything you think medicine is about is probably a lie. And what it's really about is paperwork and pleasing insurance companies. And so um, despite all of this, I just said, so I decided I'd actually rebel. And despite having all this, um, physician stuff in the family, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to do medicine just to spite my parents. So it was, it was one of those like odd rebellious things where I tried other things. Like I wanted to be a rock star. Turns out I didn't have enough of anything really talent, <laughs> hair or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then I, you know, I thought about some other things, but none of them really captured my interest or fascination like medicine. And I knew kind of what medicine was about because of my folks, but at the same time, I really didn't have a clue. And, and, you know, your parents are your parents. So you kind of don't trust them a little. It's always like, well, I don't think they're telling me the full scoop. So I need to figure this out for myself. So for that reason, I kind of, and my, you know, I had an aptitude to science. I like talking with people. Um, I was good at taking tests. So for all those reasons, and it turns out those are not the right reasons to go into medicine in retrospect, but I decided I'd go into medicine. And and in the back of my mind was this idealism that, wow, I was actually going to make a difference and help people. Um, So that's what drew me down the path. And, you know, as anyone who's applying to medical school will know, that path is fraught with all kinds of grief and misery and peril, but also a lot of fun and a lot of engagement and a lot of amazing, you know, stimulating stuff. So on balance as a whole, I actually found it to be a lot of fun, you know, going through the process to get into medical school, getting in, doing medical school, um, you know, it was actually kind of a blast. It was the actual practice of medicine that I found particularly disconcerting in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the letdown relative to the idealism that you go in with. Uh, so that was kind of my my basic one-liner, ten-liners of path. Okay. Let me ask you real quick. There's There always are some numbers thrown out there about students going into medical school and what percentage of them actually have parents that are physicians. And I've seen high numbers. I've seen low numbers. But obviously, your parents being physicians, what kind of exposure did you get being a, a child of physicians and did you think that helped in, in your decision-making or do you think it, it didn't help? You know, for me, like I, like I, uh, you know, when, when I was going through, 
all I saw really at home uh, as a, as a kid was the negative side. So I didn't see all the happy patients and all the other stuff that goes in with, uh, you know, being a doctor. What I saw was, you know, parents who came home late, who looked tired, who used to, you know, uh, uh, um, not have a lot of time, you know, outside of the office or a lot of energy left. They complained constantly about the system and how it was getting worse. And, and, uh, so that, that's really what I saw. And I think it's interesting because when I was applying, I mentioned that to the applications people, I said, look, I've seen the semia, this sort of seediest underbelly of this. And despite that, I still am fascinated and intrigued and want to do it. Um, and, and that was compelling for them because they knew, you know, they all have kids, they're all doctors. And it's like, well, you know, do we really want this for our kids? I'm not convinced my parents did until I finally got into medical school. Then they were like, okay, okay, maybe he can actually do this and do better, you know, have a better outcome than we did in terms of general satisfaction with career. Um, so yeah, for me, it was a cautionary piece. Actually, it was like a pump your brakes kind of thing, but it was also, okay, I understand basically what's involved in terms of the amount of life work balance you're going to have and those kind of things. So it's, it's more like you have a, a vague sense of what the reality of it will be, which is tremendously helpful. And I, I think it's needed. I think you, you need to see that kind of the evil side to know what you're getting yourself into. I think it's something we owe students that are going into medicine. Oh, I agree. I think anyone who tries to whitewash that is really doing a disservice. And, you know, you have a chance to really screen out people. You know, I tell students these days that if there's anything else they think they want to do and that they can do, they should do it. And if they, if they can't think of what that is, then, and they still like medicine, then do medicine, but really rule out. It's a, it's almost a diagnosis of exclusion to some extent, because there's so many things a person can do. And, and medicine is so insidiously hard in its current incarnation to be a, a, a really super satisfying and fulfilling career without a lot of effort and attention on your part. Um, that you really need to know what you're doing before you go into it. That being said, I wouldn't do anything differently myself. I actually thought it, it was the perfect choice for me, even with all the hardship and difficulty. Um, I wouldn't have done anything differently in retrospect. Yeah, and same for me as well. Yeah, the, the it's it's funny you mentioned your your parents and the the negative side that you saw when they would come home. It, it's the same story that we hear nowadays, and everybody thinks that this is something new in healthcare, that they, there's all these problems, but you experienced, you, your parents experienced this a while ago, and you saw that uh, a while ago. Yeah, and you know, so a lot of people say medicine's changed, it's gotten worse, they've lost autonomy, where there's more bureaucracy, more paperwork, insurance companies are more powerful, all that. Yes, 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 all of that's true, but the truth is, the the old days when pay, uh, physicians did have a lot of autonomy and they're basically running their own business and they're doing all this stuff, that comes with a tremendous uh, stress load as well and, and, and uh, sort of a burden on the physician to do things that he's not really trained or she's not really trained to do. So, you know, when you, when you, ha you have to balance these things where in the old days, you know, docs are working 24-7, seven days a week unless they have coverage, which was not common. So my dad, I don't think in, you know, how many years he was practicing, he ever took a vacation more than a couple, three days in a row. I mean, he just constantly working. And so, you know, times are different now, actually, in many ways it's better, but the problem is in many ways that the, the balance of that is a loss of autonomy and independence to some degree, some erosion in the respect for the field. Um, but I think in, in, in many chance, in many sort of aspects, it's an opportunity to make medicine even more rewarding than either scenario. Uh, by just putting a little bit of effort into certain leverage points, I think we can make it 
tremendous again. And it's not that far off from being done. Yeah, there's, it seems like there's a lot on the horizon that could shift everything for the positive, which hopefully will happen. Yes, I think it will. Looking back on your medical school experience, and again, having parents as physicians, you might have had a little bit better of an insight. But when you went through medical school, do you remember, was it harder than you thought it was going to be, easier than you thought it was going to be, or or were you just a, a super stud and breezed through everything? You know, it's funny. So I, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, and um, I somehow crammed through in three years. And that process was so traumatic, especially the last couple semesters where I was taking like 21 units and trying to get into medical school and doing all this research and all of this, that, um, that for me, medical school was actually, it was a nice change of pace because everything I was working on, I was kind of interested in. Um, it was pass fail the first couple of years. So there was a margin where you could kind of sit back and not get so uptight. And so I actually had a lot of fun the first two years of medical school and was surprised that it was doable at all because I'd had an ideal, I had sort of an idealistic expectation that med school was going to be impossibly hard. But in fact, it really wasn't. There's a lot of material you have to memorize, but none of it is conceptually too difficult. Um, What surprised me um, to the negative was how I would react to the clinical year, the first clinical year of, of third year, where they suddenly instituted uh, pass fail honors. So effectively grades, um, in order to get a good residency, you really had to do quite well. And it was suddenly you're thrust into the hospital. And I really don't think they prepared us, uh, for it, despite having some of this new pathway jargon and small group discussions and case-based learning and all that crap. In the end, there's nothing quite that prepares you, for, you know, quite uh, right that prepares you for being on the ward. So for me, I sort of plunged into a weird kind of fugue state where I was really convinced that I wasn't going to survive medical school and, and I hated it. And that lasted from my first rotation, which was OB-GYN at San Francisco General Hospital, which was, it was like entering boot camp, I guess, if you're in the military. It was just absolutely brutal. Um, and yet, you know, I get out of it and I get this evaluation that was like, you know, Subin was super enthusiastic and great and all this. And I'm like, you know what? I, these guys can't even see how incredibly depressed I am. And what does it, what does it tell me about how well I'm faking my way through the process? I'm not even being myself. So it was kind of a wake up call. It took me a while to adjust. And I think you have to find support from your colleagues who are going through the same thing. Uh, and also f- realize that everything in medicine is not something you're going to connect with. You're going to find those rotations that really sort of resonate. And the part of the problem, I think, is that medical school is designed in a, in a circa 1800s kind of agrarian setup where everyone enters in a big bolus and goes through um, totally different rotations in random order. So you never really have a, a sort of a stereotypical path that you go through that you can optimize, make sure you've mastered one process before you get to the next. It's a haphazard. You, know, you can start with OB, you can start with medicine, you can start with surgery. And the people on the rotations never know what you've had. And some people who are with you have had all this other stuff and you haven't had it. And it's just very disconcerting and, and unstandardized and kind of a mess. Unlike like a Toyota process where you can make sure at each, at, at each step that you know what you need to know before you go on to the next. And that's a lot more comforting. So I found it was like a sea of confusion. You, you learn what you learn in a, in a fixed time as opposed to learning what you need to learn in a variable time. So I, you know, I think the latter is probably a better way to go about it. So I found the clinical years to be very, very disconcerting. Uh, but that was just my take. And of course, the fourth year, though, a lot better. You, you have a little relaxation. You've kind of mastered some of the stuff you're going to master. You're still terrified. You're wondering what you're going to do with your life. But I think um, 
we, you know, we, we've made our friends at that point. We're really, you know, almost like veterans in a way. And we come out uh, being better for the experience. But that third year was really tough. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I never really thought about that kind of haphazard uh, system of some students start with surgery, uh, some students start with medicine, and, and there really is a, a varying degree of experience. I, I never really thought about it that way, and it's, it's tough for the student, but it's also tough for the, the, the teacher, the attendings, to, to know, like you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, it's something that is on some people's radars now in the sort of health ed, uh, you know, reform movement that maybe there's a better way to do this. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know. Yeah. And you mentioned the Toyota system, which I love studying the whole lean philosophy. But yeah, that's a whole yeah. different conversation. That's a whole. Yeah, exactly. What I'm sure we'll 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 we'll, we'll anger several multiple doctors by even mentioning the word <laughs> lean because so many institutions now are trying to implement it. You you mentioned your undergrad experience and a, a lot of the the people that listen to the show are pre-med students and you crammed in your undergrad experience in three years and it, it's not at some small state school some easy kind of get easy to get by state school you went to berkeley what what was the reason for for doing it in three years you know it's funny because and i really liked berkeley but but you know i had a lot of ap credit and after I, and I did a, a major in like molecular biology and a minor in music because I really liked music. And so really by the end, all my classes were, you know, MCB in music. So it was kind of, it wasn't as broad of an education as I would have liked. But the, but the truth is I think round about second year, I started getting tired of college and realizing that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't getting as much out of it as, as, uh, as if I'd gone to the next step. And for me, the next step was not going right into medical school. So by finishing in three years, I spent the fourth year in a lab at Berkeley doing genetics research that I really liked. And, uh, at that time, then I was, you know, applying to medical school and I kind of had a breather. And so in a way it actually worked out really well because it gave me a chance to, to explore research and make sure that that wasn't something that I wanted to do. It turns out it wasn't. And it reaffirmed that I was going into medical school with the right sort of, uh, you know, understanding of what I was getting into because I, I realized graduate school was not the answer for me. So in a way it was good. The Berkeley pre-med experience is one of the most brutal that exists because, you know, everybody wants, you know, the California UC admission and they're willing to just basically kill each other to get it, which is amazing to me. Uh, it was, in a way, it was kind of like a game, like, okay, I'm going to play this game and see if I can win and get into medical school. And so the, the fierce competitor in you comes out and it grooms you to be this type of person. There was a, there was a guy in our uh, pre-med group, that our cohort, who used to bring his own folding chair to class um, so that he could sit in front of the front row uh, whenever, whenever he went into it. It was just amazing. And so these guys were insane. And, and the problem is what that breeds is a person who is fiercely competitive and sort of the master of the me, 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 I'm better, you're not sort of scenario. Then you get into medical school and, and, and that persists, you know, rather than teaching you the skill you're going to need, which is everybody has to work together non-hierarchically, collaboratively, and patients are our equals as well. They teach you, no, 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 you got to keep doing this to advance your career and being better than everybody else and doing this and that and the other thing. And you know, I found it very backwards because that's exactly what you don't need to work in the current healthcare system. You need a totally different approach and mindset. So, um, 
you know, it all kind of how we train our doctors, how we prepare them for medical school, I think is part of the problem in terms of creating a group of docs that really can take care of people. So I don't know. I mean, you can talk about it a lot. Changing it is going to be a struggle. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I kind of, I try to preach here a lot. And I actually had an article recently on Kevin MD about the, the pre-med kind of gunner mentality. <laughs> nice. And I think I read that. It was a great. And compared it to Tiger Woods. and, and Yep. So it, it's one of those things that I, I try to, to teach people. Just because that's the way it's been doesn't mean it's the way it has to be. And also with healthcare today, with teams and the teamwork involved in patient care, and, and I always try to preach that the ultimate goal here is better patient care. It's not the degree after your name. It's not all the letters. It's, it's not you. It's the patient. And getting younger students to realize that cooperation is much, much better for everybody is, is hard. And I, it's something that uh, we need to, to help. And I, and I don't know where the answer in that is, but hopefully we find it. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, uh, just what you said right now and what I said, people pre-meds right now are listening to this and we've immediately lost credibility because in their mind, uh, we don't get it like, Oh no, 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 no. It is about, you know, it's about this and this and this. Cause I remember entering medical school year one, day one, and our Dean gave us a talk at UCSF, like, okay, everybody now understand you've been through this competitive ringer, but now it's about flying with the flock and drafting off the birds and taking turns so that we all get through it together. And it's about collaboration and equality and all this. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, dude, this woman is high. Like there is no way that you can get through this without basically doing your own thing, going, you know, and rand on everyone and just succeeding and pushing because that's everything we learned up until that point. So it's tough to get out of that mindset. Um, and it has to start a little earlier, I think, than, than it started than the first day of medical school when you basically accepted the cream of the competitive crop and tell, and now tell them, Oh, forget everything you've, you've learned and done for the last, you know, however many years of your life. Um, to the, to the count, to the counter side of that, I think sometimes to get to that epiphany that, hey, this is uh, about something bigger than me and this is about, you know, the, the the whole system and collaboration and that's where the real legacy is. Like that's where power comes from. It doesn't come from being better than others. It comes from being part of a team that can change the world. In order to get to that stage, you almost have to master the previous competitive stage. So it's hard to know whether you want to get rid of that entirely because it breeds a certain drive and motivation that then you can use to go to the next stage. But um, it took me a long time to figure that out. Yeah. 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 It's a good conversation to have. Hopefully we'll get there. And hopefully we, we still have people listening that didn't, <laughs> didn't stop listening. Exactly. So... Let's talk about your specialty choice or your lack of specialty choice, maybe, is a better term. How did you come to the decision about what you wanted to spend the rest of your life doing? That, that, I think that relates to the previous discussion because for me, I'd gone into medical school um, having been influenced by a gastroenterologist that I knew who, you know, he and my dad too, he's like, oh, you should definitely do GI because, you know, there's basically 500 bucks in everyone's colon and you can just go in and take it out. And, you know, and spend it on stuff. And, and, and so I thought, you know, I always liked gastrointestinal physiology. I liked liver stuff. And I thought I'm going to be a GI doc. I like video games and doing colonoscopy is basically a video game. So I had entered internal medicine residency with the intent of doing a GI fellowship coming out of Stanford and, and, and matching somewhere and doing that. 
And then round about second year, I did GI and I did the rotation and, and I was deep in the game of residency, kind of burning out. And I, and I had an epiphany, which is I really don't like GI. Um, and the other problem was I wasn't a big fan of how primary care was set up because it was just, it looked like it was set up in a way that you just couldn't practice medicine. You were basically working for insurance companies and, and it seemed brutal and none of the other specialties really intrigued me. So at that point I had a crisis. I was like, oh my God, like here I am in, in medicine. Um, and, and what am I going to do? So I told my, uh, program director, look, I'm going to finish my third year and I'm just going to take a year off and try to figure out what I want to do. And I'm going to go work for a couple companies and goof off and try to see if I can find my way. And of course, at an academic institution like Stanford, they hate it when residents tell them, oh, we don't have a fellowship plan or a job plan specifically after, after residency because it messes up their numbers. So I don't think they were thrilled with me at all, but it's what I had to do. So you know, it allowed me to finish my third year with a degree of senioritis, probably unheard of in, in Western civilization, where I just, I just no longer, I was like, woohoo, I'm just going to finish and I'm going to go work in a cubicle somewhere for a startup. And it was the late nineties. So promises of fame and fortune and success were dangling everywhere. And so I actually did that. And, uh, um, I realized bad on just a couple months in that I really missed doing clinical medicine. I started moonlighting, um, in urgent cares and stuff. And, and what I realized more and more is that I missed the, the, the hospital care because it was acute, it was engaging. You have these really intense relationships that, um, you know, uh, when, when people are at their most vulnerable, that's when you get to interact with them. And I missed the, the, the rush of that and the experience of that. So in the end, after working in a couple of startups and having some success there, I said, you know, I got to go back and do clinical medicine. So I took a hospitalist job at Stanford with the idea that I'm going to do this job until I figure out you know, what I really want to do. And uh, 10 years went by doing that, doing, being a hospitalist. And it turned out to suit my temperament really, really well. Uh, and for a long time, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then things started to change and I started to see some of the downside of the system that we're in, but that took a long time to develop for a long time. It was mentorship with interns and medical students and teaching and acute care and, and just really a great, 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 satisfying career. Um, that I'm so glad I went through because it helped me a lot, number one, to do what I went into medicine to do, and then also to see how things changed over time and how the system really needs to be fixed. So that was kind of my experience with fellowship or lack thereof. Yeah, it's funny, my my wife, who's a, often a co-host on the show, she's a, a neurology resident right now at, at MGH, the Harvard system, another big academic system, and she's like, yeah, I'm going to go into private practice next year. And they were like, no, no, no. You oh. should think about this fellowship or that fellowship. Oh, so, I hate that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big push. So she's going into private practice and doing a TBI fellowship at the private practice. So they were like, okay, good. <laughs> oh, wow. Perfect. Best of both worlds. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So with the the big push for fellowships and more and more special, specialization and subspecialization where you have orthopods working on only left hands and not right hands and... <laughs> And, and, and GI docs working on ascending colons and not descending colons. How do you how do you see medicine going? And, and I don't know if I would consider a, a hospitalist, and you probably don't either, as a primary care uh, field. But how do you see medicine going? Do you think it'll swing back into more and more people going into primary care, either because it's needed urgently, or just insurance companies are going to stop paying the the specialists? 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think we're going to see a combination of things like that. Now, see, to some degree, the super specialization is a reaction to high debt loads, the high pay that comes with super specialization, the idea that you can master a limited body of knowledge, but really not a larger body of knowledge. And so that's intellectually attractive for a lot of people. But I think the the, the main problem that's been driving people out of primary care is reimbursement, um, level of respect, the basic job structure. And honestly, I think there's probably a huge number of people who would do primary care if it compensated correctly and the job were structured where they could actually help people because they are really high-level, intuitive coordinators of multi-system care that you really don't get to do in a lot of the other specialties. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. Now, in, in, in hospital medicine, we get to do some of that, especially for patients that don't have primaries and that kind of thing. You do a lot of care coordination, a lot of intuitive, high-level thinking, and a lot of scut work, too. Now, if you could set it up so that in primary care and hospital medicine, et cetera, that the, that the, the more rote sort of precision functions are taken over by other entities like, you know, nurse practitioners or um, health coaches or things like that. And you open up the doc to do the high level intuitive care coordination, um, high level disease management, that sort of thing. I think it's a much more attractive um, proposition. And then you compensate them fairly. Um, it doesn't mean they have to make as much as a you know neurosurgeon, but I think they, they need to be compensated to keep people well rather than on a transactional fee-for-service basis as it is now. And I think the way to do that is to take insurance out of primary care, um, make it a, be a capitated or a flat fee membership sort of model, like, like a concierge, but more affordable. And some people who want to do concierge can do it. But I think a more affordable model where the docs are salaried and they share in the success of the clinic, I mean, I think that's probably the direction it will and should go. It's the direction we're going in here in Vegas. And I think... If you get that right, primary care becomes attractive and you open up a pipeline for graduates of medical school where they can actually do something that they love to do in a setting that makes them happy. And we're starting to see glimpses of that already with the docs that we're recruiting and things like that. Yeah, and I want to talk about the uh, clinic that you're opening there in Vegas. And what, what I wanted to ask before that, though, was not necessarily if it's the patient's fault of why we're in this crisis, but me being a patient, uh, we're all patients in, in one way or the, another, but most people don't like to go to the doctor. And so how do, you, how do you fix that side of it? Do you think these more flat fee services will get more people to come because they think, well, I'm already paying for it anyway. I might as well go. I have access to it. You know, I think that's a part of it. A part of it is that the flat fee may be paid by your employer um, who has a vested interest in getting you quality care because the bottom line is affected by your health uh, of the of a self-insured employer. Um, you know, I th- the subject of motivating patients is a complex and difficult one. And I think part of the Part of the issue here is if you talk to patients, a lot of times what they say is, I had this question, I had this thought, I had this concern about my health, but then I thought about it. I'd have to make an appointment, find a doc, someone who takes my insurance, get, you know, wait and wait and wait, take time out of my day, um, have to wait some more so that he can talk to me for 10 minutes and tell me something I could have learned on the internet. Well, that's going to be a huge, that recurrently in our focus groups, when we talk to patients, this is what they say. It's like, well, this is why I don't go. I just wait till something really breaks. And then they basically have a sick care visit as opposed to a prevention or a well care visit. So 
if you take away every transactional barrier to a patient, so they're not paying copays, they're welcome to come to the clinic. It's a fun place to be. Actually, the reception area is more like a hotel lobby where people are hanging out. There's Wi-Fi. You can chill out. Um, there's a cafe there. It's more like what you would see in a high-end kind of a gym scenario where people really kind of want to come and they'll just say hi to the health coach or to the doc. Um, again, very low barriers to the care because what they're paying for is a relationship with a team as opposed to a transactional episodic visit. I think that that allows for a lot more to happen. Now, you know, in, in chronic disease management, there are huge barriers. There's community issues, psychosocial issues, all that stuff. And I think a model where the barriers to a care team are the lowest are, are the ones that are, are going to have the best chance to succeed in modifying behavior. And I think you modify behavior by exposing a patient to different alternatives with low cost to them that make it, you know, encouraging for them to explore different ways to take care of their health. It's very hard just to tell someone to sm stop smoking. But, you know, if they're able to drop into different classes and get active and do other things, they may by, by extension start to realize, oh, you know, the smoking is really slowing me down and, you know, other ways to open gates to different behavior. So there's no easy answer, but I think the first thing is fix our current fee-for-service system and replace it with one that makes more sense in terms of incentivization for both providers and patients. Yeah, I like that. And it's kind of psychology 101. We're taking what the marketers have learned with how to get people to buy things and you remove those barriers and, and applying it towards healthcare. I think, I think in the end it'll have positive uh, outcomes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's interesting. And this is a philosophical tangent. I'm reading a book by Sam Harris, who's sort of a famous, you know, scholar, philosopher, neuroscientist. Um, he's most well known for his sort of atheist stuff, but I think his philosophy is even more interesting because what he talks about is, is there, is there this, this concept of free will? Do people really make conscious decisions that they're in control of? And his answer, and it's quite compelling in, in the description, is no, they don't. Every thought we have springs from, ultimately, if you regress back enough layers, from a complete darkness. We don't know where it's coming from. And all we know is it's coming from something structural in the brain that's influenced by genes, it's influenced by our environment, it's influenced by how we were raised, it's influenced by all these things that allow us, we're almost these neuronal weather patterns, these storms that roll around that are, you know, activity based on our past experience and our structure of our brain, our genes and all that stuff. So if we really don't have true agency, we can't consciously make decisions de novo that don't spring from this darkness, then how do we influence people's behavior? And I think part of it is doing all the things you just said, lowering the surrounding barometric pressure so that the storm behaves a certain way, you know, influencing the environment, influencing how we surround patients with certain information, how we make ourselves accessible, how we speak. Once we do that, we'll find that that, that neuronal weather pattern starts to behave in a way that really positively influences its own health and, and long-term outcomes. And again, this is just sort of mad ramblings from someone who's reading too many books about philosophy lately, but it's something I was thinking about as I read this is how do we influence patient behavior? And that's one way to think about it. One possible construct. Yeah. It's funny. So the, the barometric pressure difference, it's everything relates to high pressure to low pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's diffusion, baby. Yep. Yeah. Um, why don't you talk? I, I want to, hear what you're doing there in Vegas, not not only because it's interesting to me, but because I think students that are in medical school now or going into medical school, I think this is what you're doing there in Vegas is going to be more and more common throughout the country as a means of giving uh, 
healthcare to people. And so I think it's a job opportunity for our listeners in the future. Why don't you talk about what you're doing there and, and why you think it's going to make that difference? Sure. And I think um, that's exactly how we see it is these are future jobs for docs who are just entering training, you know, uh, is trying to build how does the future of healthcare look and how do we fix it? So a couple of quick premises. One is that in order to do something truly disruptive, in order to fix a big system that's fundamentally broken, trying to attack it head on is almost always destined to fail. And that's what's happened with our healthcare system, because the system itself has so much money and is so entrenched it's so difficult and intransigent to try to change that um, trying to attack it, you're just going to get absorbed or coverted or otherwise stopped. Um, so what we've decided is, well, let's try to fix healthcare by doing something completely different, slightly outside of the current plane of care. And the way you do that is you first fix the reimbursement structure. So we say that in, in, in primary care, our feeling is, first of all, we feel like if you fix primary care, you fix all of medicine because Primary care is the lever on our $2.7 trillion healthcare spend. It empowers patients. It prevents and treats most disease, probably 70 to 80% in our estimation, can be managed by an appropriately resourced primary care, uh, managed or prevented by primary care. Um, so what you do is you take insurance entirely out of that. So that's our current system's biggest sort of boogeyman. You say, look, we don't use auto insurance for our tire maintenance or our oil changes or our preventative tune-ups um, or, or maintenance. Why should we use health insurance for that? Um, we should pay for it directly, either through direct fees. But see, the problem with fee-for-service is it encourages a situation where the supply creates the demand. The docs are like, well, I'm going to see you again because I just want to. And uh, oh, by the way, I'm incentivized to do that because I get paid every time I see you. Um, whereas a membership model says, look, we're paying the patient's paying for the relationship with you under the assumption that you're going to keep them happy and healthy. And by doing that, um, you then empower those patients to make wise healthcare decisions for the rest of their healthcare spend, which is covered by a catastrophic wraparound insurance that pays for serious stuff like specialty care, serious testing, um, serious imaging, hospital care, those kind of things. It's like auto insurance. It's for when you get in a wreck or someone steals all your tires, or something like that. So the combination of sort of an enlightened primary care that's reimbursed in a capitated way that encourages sort of wellness as an incentive, with a wraparound catastrophic that can be less expensive because of the efficacy of the primary care and preventing some of those downstream outcomes, that's a really winning sort of financial combo. So that's our first step of the of the model we have, which is the financial disruption, which is get insurance out. And now concierge docs are doing this. There are certain other direct primary care entities that are doing this flat fee sort of thing. And there are capitated plans that happened in the 90s that were called HMOs that have a very bad rep now. So how do you fix that? Well, uh, it turns out that's the second part of the sort of uh, um, model that we're doing, and that's the care team. So rather than a sort of a one- doc, one patient sort of care team, what we're saying is, look, this is really, it's almost like it takes a village kind of scenario. A whole team of people is really required to take care of patients and um, putting all the burden on both the patient and the doc, I think is putting the burden on, on, on the wrong, it's just spreading it too thick on those two by having health coaches who are drawn from the community, who are facile in the language that the patients speak, who understand some other aspects of health, physical training, nutrition, um, you know, they may be diabetics themselves, et cetera, but they're trained up for specific medical purposes. They can take a history, they can get medication history, they can elucidate goals, they can, you know, help understand the psychosocial dynamics behind chronic disease evolution. 
those people putting them on the front lines um, in a collaborative team with a doctor or a nurse practitioner, case manager, those kind of people, that is a combination that has been shown to work in other settings. And so doing that in primary care and again, paying everyone's salaries and funding them through the flat fee membership makes everybody kind of strive towards the same thing, which is keeping members healthy, making sure their employers know that they're, that they're saving downstream health costs and the patients are satisfied because they have unlimited access to this team of people who really cares about them. And by extension, that extends into the community. So hosting, you know, yoga, meditation, nutrition classes as part of the membership and then offering it to the community as well is a way to tie all the members of the clinic and the patients together with the community that they're in. Um, that's an integral part of our model um, that, you know, wasn't done in HMOs in the 90s. In, in the 90s, if you had a flat fee reimbursement for patients, people would just shunt patients to other clinics that were expensive. They'd say, you know, this patient's going to cost us a lot of money. Let's just send them to the hospital where they'll absorb the cost. It's a zero-sum game. In this model, if patients get shunted to the hospital, their employer or they are going to see a huge uptick in their cost, and they're going to fire that clinic that didn't take good care of them or help manage them. So it's a different incentivization structure and care structure. And then the third piece is the technology piece. We feel like most electronic medical records and other medical technology is hobbled by the fact that it is designed to extract money from insurance companies, not to best take care of patients. And I may be overstating some of that, but not really. If you use an electronic medical record, you'll see most of your time is spent filling in ICD-9 codes, um, doing boilerplate sort of physical exam stuff that helps you extract money from Medicare or from insurance, and not the collaborative care where you can assign tasks to different members of the team where the patient can not just read but write in the chart. Um, these things are all part of the proprietary EMR that we're developing with our partner, Iora Health, in building this clinic. And it's a totally different way of doing sort of uh, technology to glue together the pieces of the team and really help improve outcome, not just to the patient, but the population you're serving as a whole. There are triggers in the, in the record to point out all the diabetics that are out of control, um, all the obese patients, et cetera. You can target them specifically for uh, messaging and emails, et cetera. Very population-based kind of approach. Uh, and so that's the sort of three tiers of what we're doing. And we're starting with a 7,000 square foot clinic in downtown Las Vegas. And why downtown Las Vegas? Well, it's part of the sort of revitalization we're working on, but also because it's where it's really needed. Like Vegas has very difficult healthcare. It's fragmented. There's a lot of pockets of brilliance and a lot of pockets of just despair. And we think that this is a great place to try this model out. Um, and if it works and if it's scalable, we will do that. Um, and we're hoping to create an environment and a culture from scratch where doctors love to work, patients love to come, and just the overall level of satisfaction, quality, and happiness is increased. And again, I think it takes a doctor who's been through the system, who's seen the good and the bad to be able to come and say, look, I'm going to redo it. And we have several of those. So I think I'm very encouraged that we're going to see some great things uh, happening very soon. That all sounds amazing. And it's it's funny, I think that the biggest thing that I picked up on was the electronic medical records part because they are exactly what you said. They're they're there to extract money and they're they're terribly built from a user standpoint, which we as physicians and other healthcare providers are. So hopefully what you're doing there can can be used elsewhere, even if not in a similar type of clinic, but hospitals and, and other private practices situations. I, I, that's our hope, um, but it's not our, our end goal. Our end goal is to make it work in our practice. But I think if it's something that works in other sort of direct primary care entities, then I think it's a, it's a great success. Um, and so we're, we're, we're pretty excited. I think the, 
Again, the future of the technology also goes hand in hand with, well, if you have a flat fee, flat fee membership reimbursement, then you're going to use any technology that is cost effective to take care of patients because you don't have to worry about whether insurance is going to cover it. You just know, okay, it's going to make patients better. They're going to be happier and healthier than it is worth trying out. And uh, so we're hoping to use our clinic as a crucible for sort of testing different apps and different sort of mobile uh, uh, approaches to uh, disease management, prevention, et cetera. Awesome. Well, Zubin, thank you very much for for joining us and, and sharing your knowledge. Where can people find more about you and more about what you're doing there in Vegas? Um, downtownproject.com uh, is our main website. It's a little focused on everything non-medical, but it, if you scroll to the contact section, you'll find a way to sign up for our email letter and we'll keep you in touch about what we're doing with the clinic. Uh, ZDogMD.com, Z-D-O-G-G-M-D.com is our uh, video site for all the hip hop parody, you know, to get your recommended daily allowance of, you know, crunk. Uh, <laughs> that's a place to go. And, uh, you know, that, I think that's, uh, that's a good start. Yeah. And you're up over a million views now on YouTube. Congrats. Took me a long time, whereas you can have a cat, you know, farting with a cigarette in its mouth and it's got 10 million views. So I'm a little discouraged, <laughs> but it's, it's all good. Awesome. I don't think I can get any more out of today's session i think we need to end it with smoking cats i hope you the listener found a lot of valuable information in what we talked about today i encourage you to go check out everything that dr demania is doing you can go follow him at zdogmd.com or just go to the downtown project website downtownproject.com That's it for today's show. Hope to see you next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. Flying F-16s and other fun planes. I'm a flight surgeon. Wow. You're like Goose or Maverick. I I am better than Goose or Maverick. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's a great life.